Ernest Hemingway, who was, I believe, a writer. Uh, forgive my lack of education in that area, Adam. But uh, Ernest Hemingway said that every story, if continued far enough, will end in death. Every story, if continued far enough, will end in death. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. You kind of follow the stories through, you keep going, you keep going, and eventually people die. But is that the end of the story? That's kind of an important question. We're in this series called Journey of Faith, and we've been spending 12 weeks, can you believe it, 12 weeks looking at the life of Abraham. If this is your first time, don't feel like, oh, I've missed it. It's okay. It's not a problem. We're really glad you're here because I think in some ways this is a perfect message to drop in just for one message in the series. Uh, and it kind of, I hope, works. Okay, so we're thinking about the life of Abraham. We have been for, like I said, 12 weeks, which seems like a long time, but we've actually covered 100 years of his life. So that's been pretty good going. Right, a hundred years of Abraham's life. And the reason that we've done this is because when we get our Bibles open, the first kind of extended biography that we're given is the story of Abraham. There's other stories that have happened before, but Abraham is kind of the first person where the camera zooms in and we sort of feel like we're really getting to know them. Okay, And so we've walked with Abraham for these 12 weeks. We've seen God's promise and God's faithfulness, and we've seen a whole lot of Abraham's struggles and failure and weakness, and I hope it's been helpful. I hope you've been encouraged by it. I, I've certainly been encouraged along the way. Let's just review really quick, just kind of some quick highlights, if you like. I'm going to put them on the screen. Some of the main ideas from the series, not all of them, but if we can uh, go for the, the first one here, remember this right at the beginning, God invites you to trust in his gracious promise and God protects his promise when you mess up. Next one, chapter 13, live for something beyond what you can see. Thanks, Anina. Uh, let's jump a couple of chapters to 15. God gives us great promises and the reason we can trust is because God's greatest promises don't depend on us. We went forward a couple more chapters to... Uh, 80, I'm not giving every chapter, but I'm giving a few here. Let the great human longings for love, power, and justice stir you to explore God's character. Then we saw in 19, God judges sin, but rescues sinners. We also talked about, go back one, Joel. Uh, drifting is dangerous. Judgment is no joke. Yeah, maybe you remember that. That wasn't so long ago. Next one, Genesis 22. Worship is giving God everything because he has already given everything for you. And then last week, God is working out his great plans and promises while caring for our hearts along the way. Remember some of those? Right, some of those maybe you were not here for, that's okay, you can find them online if you want, but maybe that kind of refreshes your memory a little bit of some of the themes and some of the recurring themes through this series. Well, we come to the point where Abraham is going to die. We can't skip that. It seems kind of important. All stories, if you follow them through, eventually come to the end in death, right? So here we go. Genesis 25. We'll have it on the screen. And uh, hopefully you'll see the page number at the top after the reference. I won't give the page number every time. hope that's okay. So in Genesis 25, at the start of the chapter, we discover that Abraham had other children, which is kind of scary. 
It took him a very long time to have Isaac. He was 100 when Isaac was born. Uh, and then uh, Isaac grew. Sarah died. She died at 137, which puts Abraham at 147, if I'm getting my maths right. And then he marries someone else, and there's a whole load of children. I'm not going to read them because there's some pretty long names in there. And they end up kind of becoming different nations. And so he sort of sends them away with gifts, like he provides for them, but he guards Isaac in the promised land. This line of promise, this special child that God has given him and Sarah, he's kind of protected. Okay, and then we come to verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. That is not too shabby, is it? 175, imagine. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. So there's the end of the story. Right? That's the conclusion of the great Abraham narrative in Genesis. Now, I've highlighted on the screen that phrase, after the death of Abraham. That's a phrase that you don't find anywhere else in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's the only time it's mentioned. But the reason I want to flag it is because after Deuteronomy, it gets used a few times. Joshua 1 verse 1, Judges 1 verse 1, 2 Samuel 1 verse 1. Every time, it's at the point of somebody significant dying. After the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua, after the death of Saul. And so in all four of those cases, it's kind of saying, all right, we've had... A big story about a big life, a big era has come to an end. And it's almost like, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? Like, is that the end? Is that where things fall apart? Is that where things go wrong? But notice how it's used here. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. God has been blessing Abraham and promising things to Abraham and as soon as Abraham dies, we're told he blessed Isaac. It's carrying straight on. He's not giving up. He's not backing off. God is going to follow through. He's going to keep the promises that he's made. And so when we turn the page to Genesis 26, we get the story of Isaac. And uh, we're not going to go through that. I'll just kind of tell you that he ends up doing some of the same stuff as his dad. Okay, the kind of clue to that is in verse 1. Excuse me. In that, there we go. 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Uh oh. Same place, same person or title used back a few chapters when Abraham gave Sarah away and created a whole confusing mess, Isaac's going to do the same thing. It seems to be a bit of a family trait for some reason. But the interesting thing is, consistently through this, God is gracious. Even though Abraham, now Isaac, and after him Jacob, even though they mess up, 
right? Even though their life story is not impressive, like, wow, look at how godly these people were. They were people that mess up things just like we do. But God was faithful to them. But look at the next couple of verses. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said to him, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That is almost word for word what he promised Abraham back at the start of the series. And now as the story and the spotlight shifts onto Isaac, the son, God steps in and says it again. And we could keep going through Genesis and see that God keeps reiterating his promise. His plan and his promise is to bless this family and through this family to bless all the families of the earth. Okay, so that's kind of the launching point of the Bible. We've kind of come to the end of the life of Abraham, but it carries on. And because Abraham's life is so significant, or at least the promises God made to him are so significant, down through the last 4,000 years plus, Jews and Christians have been pondering the life of Abraham. Not many people that get talked about for 4,000 years, right? Most people get forgotten by what, a generation or two later. What was your grandfather's name? I don't remember. That's not thrilling, is it? But for Abraham, here we are 4,000 years later and we're still talking about him because his life and especially God's dealing with him was so incredibly significant. Later on, like 1,500 years later, he gets a mention in the book of Isaiah. We'll put that on the screen. And this is a, kind of a famous verse. If you, if you know your Bible uh, or you've read your Bible a bit, you might recognize bits of this. But I just want us to see this where, where God says, but you Israel, speaking to the nation, now there's lots of them, but you Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's kind of a cool verse, isn't it? Verse 10. But notice verse 8. Abraham, my friend. That's kind of a cool little throwaway, isn't it? God calling Abraham my friend. I mean, just think about that. God who created everything is in charge of everything, is completely holy, completely perfect, will not let sin go by. He will judge and deal with it. And yet Abraham, who was uh, struggling, failing, sinning, uh, giving wife away kind of sinner type of person, right? Abraham was not Mr. Perfect by any stretch. And yet somehow God calls Abraham my friend. Makes you wonder, how'd you get that? Because right, we're strugglers. All of us have got stuff in our lives we're not proud of, stuff we'd rather not talk about. And the fact that God knows everything can fill us with all sorts of fear to think that we're going to stand before a God who knows everything we've done and said and thought. That's actually terrifying. What would it take for God to say, ah, yes, welcome, my friend? 
be great, wouldn't it, to know that. How do you get right with God? You see, what I want to do in this message is say, okay, let's kind of go helicopter view a little bit. Let's look at the whole Bible. We're not going to go, you know, every reference to Abraham because there's a lot of them. But I want us to look at how Abraham is reflected on through the Bible because I was thinking about it earlier. Maybe a better way to put it is like this. What if Abraham was to visit today? If we somehow arranged, and you know, Andy's got some contacts, but he hasn't pulled this one off. But if somehow we could get Abraham transportation from heaven, and he was able to come here, I would give him the microphone, and I would hand him a Bible, and I'd be fascinated to listen to what he has to say, wouldn't you? Well, he's been in heaven for quite a while, and he's had time to process, and he's read the rest of this. And so I think it would be great to hear from Abraham what he would want us to learn. After 12 weeks looking at his life, what would Abraham want us to take away from this series? Well, I'm pretty confident that I know what he would say, even though I'm sure he'd do a better job of it. But I'm confident because of what the Bible tells us about him. He's had plenty of time to ponder and come to the conclusions that we have here. And so what I want us to do is to just do a little quick three steps through the New Testament and look at how Abraham is used in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just use one of them, but essentially it's the same message in all four. How Abraham is used as a reference in the letters that Paul wrote. And he mentions him in quite a few, but we'll just pick one of them. And then the other letters that come at the end of the New Testament. That's kind of three big blocks of New Testament writings. We'll take one book from each of them and say, okay, what's the deal with Abraham? Specifically answering the question, how do we get right with God? Because that's what Abraham teaches us. The way he's talked about, the way the books describe him and mention him and quote him, it points us to how we can get right with God. And I think that is as important a message and as important a lesson as we could possibly learn. And so Abraham's going to teach us the most important thing. All right, so let's go to the New Testament and let's... Uh, kind of turn over the blank page to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books tell us about Jesus coming into the world and what he came to do and his death and his resurrection and so on. So we've jumped forward in time. Abraham was a couple of millennia before Christ, Right, we're a couple of millennia after, so we're kind of halfway between Abraham and us at this point. And we're looking at just the first couple of verses and see right away that Abraham is important. Matthew begins his writing, his document about Jesus by saying this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, son as in descendant of great, 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 great grandson with many more greats, right? So it's that kind of son. And then he starts into his genealogy and he starts with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and on it goes through David and through the exile right the way through to the birth of Jesus. And so Abraham is 
obviously really significant. The way Matthew is summarizing the Old Testament, he's saying, okay, all of God's plans, all of God's promises, the ones he made to Abraham, the ones he made to David, all of that feeds through to this person, Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is very much a big deal. He's the big deal of the Bible. So Jesus is the focus of Matthew. But if we go over to Matthew 3, we're just going to see an example straight away of how the people that lived at Jesus' time thought about Abraham. Okay, so Jesus had a guy come before him called John the Baptist. He came and he preached and he tried to prepare people for Jesus. I just want you to notice what it says here. In verse 7, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's religious leaders, he sees them coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers. That's a line to save in case you're really upset at work. Uh, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. You see, the the religious people of Jesus' time, the Jewish people in, in Israel, their thought, their assumption was, we're descended from Abraham. And he's a big deal. So we're fine. And notice how John the Baptist immediately cuts that out from underneath them. Don't don't go saying oh, we're, you know, our father is Abraham. If God wants to make new children of Abraham out of stones, he can do it. The the point he's making is your family tree is not the big deal. Direct descent from Abraham doesn't matter. And actually, as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that comes up quite a number of times. John 8, for example, is a big old argument between Jesus and the religious leaders all about that idea. Abraham's our father. It doesn't matter. And that kind of gives us the first big thought from the New Testament. Being a direct descendant does not matter. If our goal, our desire is to get right with God, it doesn't matter if you have Jewish ancestry or if you don't. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian country or if you weren't. It doesn't matter if your parents and grandparents went to church and loved Jesus. It doesn't make the slightest bit of difference because getting right with God is something that is personal. And so you might be sat here thinking, well, you know, I'm from a Christian country. I'm fine. No, that doesn't do anything. I've always gone to church. My family's always gone to church. And my family's family before them always went to church. Great, but it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make things right between you and God. Go to church every week for your entire life. I was chatting with someone this week and we were joking about how you can sit in a garage your entire life but it doesn't make you a car, right? Going to church doesn't make things right with God and so whatever your ancestors may or may not have been doesn't make any difference. God wants you to get right with him personally and as we look at the Abraham examples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we see that coming out that these Jewish people who were proud of their heritage Jesus was saying, 
That doesn't cut it. Direct descent or being a direct descendant doesn't matter. Okay, so how do we get right with God then? Well, let's jump over to Paul's letters. Okay, we're going to go to Romans, the most famous letter that Paul wrote. And he has been writing, this is uh, mid-50s, first century, writing to the church in Rome and explaining the truth of, of the message of Christianity, if you like, the gospel. And he's saying to them in the first chapters, you know what, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not. He's kind of saying the point we've just made. Being a direct descendant is not the issue. And so you may be from a Jewish background where you keep the law and you behave yourself and you're ultra-religious. Or you might be from a completely different background where religion was a bit of a joke. Actually, it doesn't really make any difference. How is it possible for us to get right with God? That's kind of what Paul's addressing specifically here. So in verse 23 of Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Jews, non-Jews, religious, irreligious, Cub Scouts, Eagle Scouts, Girl Guides, the best of society and the very worst, doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, made right with God, justified, that's what that means, that the relationship is made right. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's some big words there. Redemption means that Jesus has paid the price to make it possible for us to be brought into a relationship with God or to the way we're putting it today, to be made right with God. He's paid the price. When Jesus came into the world, he came on a mission to go to the cross. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't things getting out of hand. It was his plan. It was God's plan for him to go to the cross and to pay the penalty, not for his sin, because he didn't have any. He paid the penalty for our sin. And having paid the price, he is able to buy us back. That's what redemption means, to buy us back for God. So how does that work? How are we made right with God? Well, what does it say? Verse 24 we are justified or made right with God by his grace as a gift. You know, people think the Bible's full of rules and telling you that you, you know, you've got to fix yourself and do better and just kind of generally make you miserable. The main thing the Bible's actually telling you is that God wants to give you a gift. He wants to give you the gift of being right with him. That's the ultimate gift, isn't it? To be able to face not only life, but when you get to the end of the story, to face death, unafraid that there might be a God and that you might have to answer to him. Confident because things are right and good between you so that you know when he welcomes you to the judgment seat, he'll welcome you as a friend. That's the gift that God wants to give us. Now, the passage is kind of working its way through that. I just want to read you uh, some, some little bits of it here. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? If it's a gift, can we boast about how we've earned it? Well, of course not. You can't do that. Um, because he says, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also, that's non-Jews. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the rest of us, by faith. Either way, it's a faith thing. Right? So it's not, it's not saying that there's one way for Jewish people and religious people and another way for other people. No, everybody is justified if they accept it as a gift. It's something that God wants to give you. And so whatever your background, whatever your parents, grandparents, heritage, culture, whatever, it doesn't actually matter. He's offering you a gift. And the gift is to be made right with him. Now, as we turn, or I turn the page, I don't think you do in a church Bible, but chapter four, he immediately then goes to talk about Abraham. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? He was Jewish, so it's literally his forefather. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, notice these next two verses. This is really important. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's a lot going on here, but basically he's drawing a contrast. He's saying there's a difference between wages and a gift. If you're uh, blessed enough to have a job, every week or four weeks or month, however often it is, your employer transfers money into your bank account, right? Hopefully. Yeah, no one's nodding. I'm really concerned at this point. We're all in trouble. Okay, so that's kind of how it works, right? Once a month or once every however often, money is transferred in. Now, at that point, do you sit down, get out a nice little note card and say, dear Halifax, dear Sainsbury's, John Sainsbury, dear, I don't know, Colonel, whatever his name is at KFC, like, dear boss, I am so touched by the wondrous generosity for you to pay me the money that you owe me for the work that I've done. And I just want to express my gratitude for your kindness what a blessing that you thought of me. Love, warm hugs, you know, and your name. Do you do that? No. Why not? Because they owe you, right? It's a contract. You've done the work. They owe you the money. If they don't pay you the money, you can take them to court. But if they do pay you the money, you probably don't give it a second thought in terms of, I must say thank you. I've never heard of anyone writing a thank you note for their wages, now, I have heard of people, when they get their wages, going, right, now I can treat myself because I've earned this. All right, weekend away, whatever, or just pay a bill, that, that would be a blessing, wouldn't it? You know, whatever, you know, your excitement is when the money comes in, it tends to be focused on you, not on them. Why? Because you're owed it, you've earned it. But when Christmas comes or your birthday comes and somebody gives you a generous, thoughtful kind gift, then you are more likely to sit down and say, dear aunt, whoever, don't write whoever, write their name, but you know, dear aunt 
Jemima, thank you so, so much for your really generous gift. It was so thoughtful and you didn't have to do that and I'm really touched, blah, 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 lots of love, hugs, kisses, etc. And then your name at the bottom, that's completely appropriate, isn't it? Because it's not a salary. It wasn't owed to you, it was a gift. And that's the difference, the contrast that Paul is making as he writes Romans. He's saying, we don't get right with God by earning it. We cannot be good enough. We cannot keep enough rules. We cannot turn over enough new leaves and and kind of fix the problem areas of our lives. We cannot do it. But that's not the issue because actually we get right with God as a gift. And so he, he leans towards us. He initiates. He pays the price and he offers us the life that can only come from being in relationship with the one who made us in the first place. You see the difference? You don't say thank you to your boss for that. You might thank yourself for working. You've earned it, fair enough. But God doesn't ask us to earn our relationship with him because we never could. There's no one here who could get anywhere close. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he gives us the opportunity to be right with him as a gift. If we will trust him that his gift is good, that his word can be trusted, if we will accept, then we will have a relationship with God. Isn't that wonderful? We can never earn it. He offers it to us. He doesn't force it on us. It's up to us to receive it and accept it and say thank you for it. But it's a gift. It's by grace. Now, he carries on talking about Abraham quite a bit more in the chapter. But if we just jump down to verse 16, where he's kind of saying this is why it depends on faith. Faith is so important. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's back to Abraham. It's all about Abraham, this chapter. Uh, As it is written, quote from Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness or the deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Why does God want us to read those words? It was counted to him. What was counted to him? Well, he looked at his own body and he said, 100 years old practically dead looked at his wife bless her thought about her reproductive part I was like well that's pretty dead too right and so he's looking at a, uh, the deadness of her womb and the deadness of his own body and he's believing that God is able to bring life in the context of death 
And even though all the evidence said, no way, it's not going to happen. He said, no, God said it, and so I believe it. He trusted. And because he trusted, God said, okay, then things are good between us. If you're going to trust me, then we can have a relationship. And that was written for our sake. Look at why and how it, it, it says that here at the end. Verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is raised to let us get right with God. And so we're kind of in a similar position. God isn't promising us children when we are in our, you know, days waiting for the queen to write us a telegram. That's not a promise that applies to all of us. If that happens, praise the Lord, I'll be excited to read about it. But, but what's the promise that he makes to us? It's a promise about death and it's a promise about life. It's God is kind of putting it out there for us, saying, okay, I've raised Jesus from the dead. No one's been raised from the dead in your experience. You've never met somebody who was dead, properly dead. You might have met someone that was resuscitated and, you know, praise the Lord and thank the nurses or doctors for that, but actually dead and then back to life, resurrected, that's not part of our normal experience. But God did that for Jesus and it's an offer for all of us. Will we, in a world where death is inevitable and death seems absolutely permanent, will we trust God's word as he offers us life in the context of death? If we're prepared to look at the evidence and look at the, the promise that he's made and say, you know what? I'm prepared to trust that. I'm prepared to trust that when God raised Jesus from the dead, that actually happened and it actually means that he's offering me life even if I die or when I die. Trusting God for life in the context of death is what God counted as righteousness for Abraham. It's what makes God say, all right, you trust me with that? You're mine, my friend. In a relationship, you're in my family, you're my child, you're my part of the bride of Christ. All of the different words that the Bible uses, the whole deal, it's yours. And what do you do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. You accept it by faith. It's a gift that is offered and as you trust, so God's righteousness is given to you. That's the wonderful message of the Bible. And we could keep going in Romans and we could drop over to Galatians and other places and see how for Paul, this was kind of the big point of Abraham's life as he had pondered it and thought about it. What's it saying? Well, let's put it up on the screen. Next one, Joel, number two, you get right with God by faith, not works. That's huge, isn't it? You get right with God, not because of family line and family history and all that stuff, not because of cultural background or whatever passport you carry. No, that's number one. Direct descendant does not matter. Number two, you get right with God by faith, not works. It's a gift. It's not earned. Number three, we go to the other letters of the New Testament very briefly. Let's just jump into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. And this is a passage that talks about lots of people in the Old Testament. And it talks about how by faith they did great things. 
It's really talking about God's faithfulness to them in many ways and showing how it was not their greatness but their faith. But the cool thing about Hebrews 11 is that about a third of it, more than a third of it, is all about Abraham. And what I want you to see here is that Abraham's faith showed in his life. Let me read it to you, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Okay, so by faith he obeyed, he moved, he lived. And next verse, verse 13, he died. Look at verse 13. These all, all of these people that we're talking about, they died in faith, that is, they died with their faith still intact. I love to think of Abraham lying on his deathbed as the heart monitor is about to go flat, and with his final breath, it's like he says, I still believe, still trusting, still believe that God was able to follow through and fulfill his promises. And so, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham knew that he was going somewhere, that there was life even beyond his death because God was preparing that for him. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had, had, sorry, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, and on it goes. I think the, the thing that comes through when I read Hebrews, when I look at James, I think Peter mentions Abraham as well. The thing that comes through here is that if you have faith in God, then it shows in your life, which kind of completes the whole New Testament picture of the life of Abraham. Let's put it up on the screen. We've got number one, being a direct descendant does not matter. Number two, you get right with God by faith, not works. And number three, your faith should show. That's kind of a couple of thousand years of contemplation on the life of Abraham coming out through our New Testament. And I think that's important for us. In fact, I think every one of us needs to think about one of those. Maybe you're sat here today and you're thinking, well, yeah, but I'm from a Christian country or my grandfather or my Jewish ancestor or whatever. If you're in that place thinking that somehow you're right with God because of something that was true when you were born, you need number one. 
You need to know that being a direct descendant does not matter. God wants to offer you life. But if you're relying on any of those things, you don't have it. Maybe you're sat here today and you're thinking like most of us as humans naturally think, I've got to do better. Or even I'm doing pretty well. Or maybe I'm not doing well enough. And so whether you're hopeful or hopeless, your focus is on your behavior and your kind of attempt at perfection. And you're hoping that when you stand before God, if he exists, he's going to say, well, you know, all things considered, pretty good. That'll do. But the Bible says that's not the way it works. You get right with God by faith, not works. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. And if that's what you're thinking, that you can earn it, you need number two. You need to ponder that reality. In fact, I would say don't ponder it too long because the end of every story is death and then it's too late. Much better to say, you know what? I'm ready to accept that. And if that's where you're at, if you're sat here thinking, yeah, I've never actually accepted the gift of life that God has offered me in Jesus, then I would urge you to accept it today. And in fact, I would say after the the meeting, please talk to one of us. Maybe you have a question or two, just a little clarification before you take that step. Or maybe you just want to say, hey, I'm ready. Can we pray? Ask somebody here. There's plenty of us that would be delighted to just be with you through that moment of accepting the gift of being right with God, the gift of life that he offers us. Or maybe you've done that. Maybe that was years ago or weeks ago, whatever. And you're like, you know, I'm really, I'm really thankful. By God's grace, I'm right with him. Okay, the number three is for you. Number three is the thing to ponder. Your faith should show. Think about Abraham. His faith gradually grew and it more and more showed how he lived where he moved to, the decisions he made, the offerings that he made to God, the sacrifices, and ultimately even how he died. I think all of us could look at number three and say, yeah, there, there probably is something more that still needs to be worked out in my life. Look to God and ask him for help. Where are you at with these three lessons from the New Testament? Are you number one? Are you a number two or... And number three, I'd encourage you to ponder and respond to that. Maybe talk to somebody wherever you're at, whichever question or point is the most relevant for you, because it would be a shame to leave this series behind and just let it drift away when actually this series is here to challenge us. More than that, this series has been here to change us. And so I'd encourage you to take that on board. Let's just go forward one more slide. Abraham teaches us the most important lesson in the Bible. We can only get right with God if we trust God to save us. It's the only way. You can't earn it. You can't have it based on your background. It's a gift. And by faith, we need to receive that gift. Well, that's the end of the series. It's the end of the message. And I thought, just as we finish... I can't leave the series on Abraham without reading to you final three verses that I absolutely love from the book of Micah. So let's get that on the screen. Micah chapter seven. You'll see why, just in light of what we've said, 
Micah, prophet in the Old Testament, wrote this. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Who is a God like you who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. This God, he says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like the God Abraham has shown us?